0: Turn into your Bibles to Ephesians chapter one. We're in verses fifteen through twenty three and Contra Shelton. Um, I think we're twenty five thousand dollars behind in our financial giving, but who's counting you know? <laughs> No, we don't make a big big deal of that. Paul was a busy guy, right? he was busy getting beaten and caned and stoned and arrested and shipwrecked and thrown into prison he was he was the kind of guy during the during his his day job was planting churches he worked a part-time job at night building tents and in his free time he did he to top it off he wrote the bible <laughs> you know he's a he's a busy guy but he's a guy who always takes time to pray for other people, and he prays for people that he hasn't even necessarily met, which was the case with these Christians that are addressed in the book of Ephesians. And what we have in verses 15 through 23 today is really one of the greatest pastoral Pauline prayers that are, it's recorded in all of the Bible. Now, just like the, the previous section, how I said... Verses uh, 3 through 14 were one long, great, run on sentence in the Greek. This is also a long, run on sentence. But you can imagine how encouraging it would have been for these Christians living in literally the backwoods of modern Turkey when they heard that the Apostle Paul, he knows about us, He's, he's heard about our faith. In fact, He loves us. The Apostle Paul is praying for us. It must have been a real shot of of spiritual adrenaline to them. And that's one of the reasons he includes it. For this reason, verse 15, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all, literally all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ The glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Isn't that interesting? Paul prays that Christians would know God better. (laughs) We pray that God would change our situations. Paul prays that through our situations, we might know him better. That we might have, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That is your true inner self in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. It's a great N.T. Wright quote in the front of the bulletin about hope. The hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, Paul goes on to describe that power. He could have said, you know, that power is like the power of a raging hurricane that strikes the Mediterranean seacoast. Of course, I don't know that hurricanes strike the Mediterranean, but he could have said that. He could have said that power is the power that God used to create all of the universe out of nothing, ex nihilo. But Paul instead turns to what he believes is the greatest power in all of the cosmos. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly, heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power. And dominion, every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And he says, and this is—it's an entirely different sermon. I'll have to jump into it one day. But he says that power is the power that is at work within you. If we only had the eyes of our heart open to see that kind of power at work within us, it sounds—it just sounds way over the top. It sounds like it couldn't be true, but that's indeed what he's praying that we would see, that they would see. Verse 22, this is where I'm going to focus my attention. And God placed all things under Jesus' feet, and God appointed Jesus to be head over the church, over everything for the church, which is Jesus' body, the fullness, the pleroma of him who fills everything in every way. Anne Rice created quite a stir in the Christian blogosphere a few weeks ago. You, you know probably the name. She's the you know, best-selling, gothic, horror, novelist. Rice, she experienced a very powerful conversion to Christianity, to the Roman Catholic faith in 1998, after many years of living as a self-described atheist. But uh, probably two or three weeks ago, she posted on her Facebook page that she was done. No mas, no more Christianity for me. And of course, like I said, it generated a great deal of response in the blog sphere. Lots of, lots of posts, many of them vicious <laughs> from from disgruntled Christians. The very best response was the response that Mark Driscoll wrote for the Washington Post in their faith and faith and I don't know their faith blog section for the Washington Post, and he hit it out of the park, in my estimation. I want to read it to you. It's kind of lengthy, but. He's running the bases still. (laughs) Anne Rice is in a season that many, if not all, Christians experience. The great joy of coming to personally embrace the love, forgiveness, and new life that Jesus offers is then followed by the troubles and trials of learning the teachings of the Bible and living with fellow Christians. And truthfully, both are difficult. Every Christian struggles to varying degrees with different parts of the Bible because Because they call us to repent of beliefs we formerly held and ways in which we formerly behaved. Anne Rice struggles by her own admission with the Bible's opposition to homosexuality and its teachings on gender roles. She also struggles with the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church on birth control and politics. Many Protestants would likely agree with her there in principle. But additionally, every Christian has seasons in which he or she struggles to lovingly live in community with fellow Christians as the church. That's because some Christians are so self-righteous, mean-spirited, and just plain annoying that even their pastors are occasionally tempted to preach in one of those, Jesus, please save me from your followers, t-shirts. The problem for Anne Rice is that unlike other Christians who get to work out their faith struggles in private, she's a public figure who decided to write, in the name of Christ, I quit Christianity and being Christian, which only invites the kind of vicious online responses that pushed her to make the statement in the first place. To her credit, she, she was clear that she still loves Jesus Christ as her God and wants an ongoing relationship with him. Her post leads to the very important question I was asked to answer. Can you leave Christianity and keep Christ? Can you be spiritual without being religious, as everybody wants to do these days? And he goes on, the answer is yes and no. Yes, you can leave Christianity for a while and still be a true Christian. However, you can't stay away from the church and community with fellow believers forever. The Bible speaks to this very issue. The Apostle John, he wrote the book of 1 John, specifically so that people might know whether they're truly Christians whether they might truly have, they really have eternal life with God. To serve that pu- purpose, John describes numerous evidences of change in someone's life that, in- that indicate whether or not he or she has become a, a real Christian. And for example, the-, the basic one is 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters of the family. He goes on and gives a few more, but here's how he concludes. My guess is that Mrs. Rice will eventually return to the church. In time, she will realize that she is being judgmental, self-righteous, and intolerant, just like the people she's stereotyping. If she is a true Christian, God will lovingly, graciously, and patiently help her to see not only how others have treated her, but also how she's responded to them. In the meantime, Christians shouldn't be shouldn't be offended by her rejection of christianity we should instead use it as an opportunity to search our own lives to see how we've been vicious cruel mean unloving and difficult to others and to repent of our own sin without fixating on what we think are her sins and we should also pray for her my guess is that she's simply struggling with what it means to be a christian while hurting She lost her daughter, Michelle, to leukemia in 1972. Buried her gay best friend, John Preston, who died of AIDS in 1994. In 2002, she buried her husband of 41 years, Stan Rice. Her son, best-selling author Christopher Rice, is a gay rights activist whom she loves even while she reads the Bible's denial of his lifestyle as a God-honoring one. So let her fellow Christians pray. Love and wait for Jesus to keep working on her as he is on us, thanking him that at least our struggles are not as publicly scrutinized as hers. And that's how it ends. The doctrine that Paul covers in verses 22 and 23 in our passage this morning is the, the doctrine, it, I'll put it in simple terms. Right now, Jesus Christ is in heaven with God the Father. And he has a physical body just like yours and mine. He has hands, fingers, knees, and toes, knees and toes, right kids? He has all of that up in heaven with his Father. But he also has another body down here on earth. And Paul is a guy who's constantly telling us that body happens to be the church. The church is the hands, fingers, knees, and toes of Jesus Christ. And for Paul, that was a doctrine that wasn't it was theoretical, but highly personal in nature. And here's why. You remember how Paul came to faith. He's walking down the Damascus Road. He's headed there, intending to arrest, torture, and eventually kill the local church leaders of a little church there in the Syrian capital. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears to him in this great bright light and says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Now, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you perse... Jesus, he says, I have so self-identified. The very first word Paul hears out of Jesus' mouth, I've so self-identified my life with these Syrian Christians that when you cut them, it's I who bleed. I bleed. You're persecuting me. And I think that for Paul, the reason Paul is, is the great... You know, pastor of the churches on that very day, the first day of his Christian life was the day that the doctrine of the body of Christ was born in his mind. What do we mean when we say that the the church is the body of Christ? What did Paul mean by that word church? Well, I think in Paul's day, church meant real people reading it, meeting in. Uh, real places, real gatherings of real people in real bil- buildings in real time. You know, they—I don't think they had back then the doctrine of the invisible church, that the, all Christians of all ages, everyone from from Adam to you know in the future, who at all times and all places believe on Jesus—that was a concept that was developed in later theology. When people said, when Paul said, "Church," oh, yeah, that group that meets at the marketplace on Caesar Street. I was passing by there one day. Apparently they were singing some and they were reading some, but they're cannibals, man. They do some kind of weird eating ritual. And that's what the pagans were saying, church. Oh yeah, they, whoa, we're going to go there. They're cannibals, real people, really meeting, really sharing their lives, their problems, caring for each other's kids, caring for each other's mortgages, hiding with each other when, when Saul and his fellow policemen came after them. It sounds ludicrous, I know, it sounds ludicrous to say that that is the body of Christ on earth. Um, But Paul goes one step further in verse 23. Not only does he say that that's the body of Christ, he says that that group of people is the body that Jesus inhabits. Jesus Christ did not come to save our individual souls and give us a get out of hell card free. He came to weave us into a community that is more beautiful, more sturdy, more resilient, than anything we could ever be as individuals. And he came to inhabit that community. It says it, verse 23, the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. It almost sounds heretical to say this, but there's a sense that Jesus Christ is not complete without his church. And if you want to know how Jesus is sort of populating the earth today, if you want to know how Jesus is filling up the city of Boise, it's through ragtag little meeting places like this one and, and some bigger ones like Calvary Chapel downtown and the, you know the vineyard and Garden City. It's in just ragtag little communities like this that Jesus fills up this place. Raise your hand if you've ever been in a season of life where you just, you wanted nothing to do with a local institutionalized church. It's it's gonna, okay, it was a rhetorical raise your hand, but nevertheless, if you didn't raise your hand, of course, you're, you're lying through your teeth. raise your hand rhetorically if you didn't think it was very important the local church was very important to your own Christian experience and practice of course we have thought that 81% of Americans say that you can live a flourishing Christian life without ever being part of of a local institutionalized church and we were more than likely you're just like me you were unintentionally taught this mindset you were unintentionally taught just give me a good devotional life give me, you know, personal devotional life, a good bible study, a small circle of friends cut out of the same demographic slice of pie that I am. You know, maybe give me a few short-term mission opportunities, a mission field in Mexico or, you know, on the reservation and we're pretty we're pretty close to saying that my Christian life is complete. I'd love to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, I would love to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and not have to put up with all of the drama <laughs> associated with the church. It would be a billion times easier to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and not have to have to worry about the church. But the, but I think if you're a Bible, a faithful Bible reading kind of Christian, the Bible just keeps pulling you back because over and over again you keep running into these church metaphors. If I got the opportunity to speak to Uh, to Anne Rice or to the millions like her who would be self-categorized as de-churched today, I would try and say this. I would say, look at the metaphors. Work with the metaphors. Metaphor number one. The church is called the bride of Christ. We know that. Groom, bride, the church is called the bride of Christ. For me, it, it would be terribly insulting if you came to me and said, Brad, I want a relationship with you, but I don't want anything to do with your wife. Right? I want a relationship with you so long as I never have to set foot in your house while she's there. I never have to eat her cooking. We never have to go on double dates. It would be terribly insulting because the whole nature of wedding, of marriage, is my wife and I are one. And to have me is to have her. To have her is to have me. Metaphor number two, the church is called the family of God. We talked about that a bunch two weeks ago. Imagine a woman falls in love with a single guy who has out of the great benevolence of his heart adopted some 10 kids out of the foster care system and made them his own. You know 10 kids he snatched them out of abusive family situations, physical mental abuse, substance abuse, going through the you know the merry-go-round of houses and families. He snatched them up. It's a multi-ethnic group of kids. They're from different different you know socioeconomic and different ethnic backgrounds imagine if she says to that guy who she's fallen, falls in love with i love you roger i love you i want to spend the rest of my life with you but i don't want anything to do with those brats i don't want to your kids are brats and and he would say yep <laughs> your kids have got one too many problems he would say yep your kids will suck me dry. And he says, yep. And to have me, you've got to have them. Because my kids are my own. And because that's love. Love is to take all of me. Metaphor number three, I would say. It's the, it's the, the metaphor of the church as the body, Christ as the head. What American Christians, and I can sel- consider myself you know, part of this for a long time, what American Christians want to do is say, Jesus, you look beautiful to me from the neck up. I'm lo- I'm in love with your eyes. I am in love with every sweet word honey drop do dropped do, you know, whatever, honeyish word that comes from the li- your your lips. I love your nose and your face. I love your face. I love your head. I love your hair. Just don't make me look below the neck. Because it's ugly down there. It's messy down there. That's dissection. That's, that's not love. Or the fourth metaphor, what Peter calls, he calls a church living stones. So it's a mixed metaphor living, organic, alive, stones, non organic. He says the church is being built as living stones into a holy temple in which God chooses to dwell. You think of a, a stone wall, for instance. Of, Kind of the essence of a stone wall is you have individual stone here, and this individual stone is surrounded by all of these other stones that are highly dependent upon that one individual stone. So if that individual stone shakes, then the whole wall shakes. If that individual stone comes out, then everything falls. You know, most Christians in America right now, if they come to church at all, they come just to church to hear the teaching to maybe go through a couple of classes, um, especially your like super uber cool preaching churches like Redeemer in New York City, I think I told you. And because Tim Keller is such a hot com- commodity, they've actually had to start, I think it was, a tourist service, because everybody just would have come in for the weekend and, and hear Tim. And he looked at the congregation one morning, and I, can, I understand why he said this. He asked this question of his congregation. He said, Are you so built into the lives of other believers that if you stopped coming, things would collapse? Are you so built into the lives of other believers that if you were shaking, everybody else would feel the quake? Because that's interdependence. Interdependence means that we share decisions together. We don't make unilateral decisions You don't make your decisions alone. You share your decisions. You share your private struggles. You share your emotions. You share share your your homes. You share your practical helps. To the degree, he said, that you are being built together into interlocking, interdependence, that is what God chooses to inhabit. And that is how the power of the Holy Spirit increasingly comes into your lives. And I might add to that. And that is how Jesus... How the presence of Jesus will ultimately be known in this city. That's how. Speaking of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Very simple what Jesus would do. Every every Saturday, which would have been his Sunday, our Saturday, every Saturday, for the man's whole life, he was in synagogue. Every Saturday. And Paul followed the same pattern. He would go to, They would go to synagogue, he would sit there along with the mothers and fathers and children of the village, and what do you do in synagogue? Well, you read Torah, you sing psalms, you pray out loud, just kind of like a Christian worship service today. Yeah, Christian worship is patterned upon synagogue worship of the Old Testament. That's where you could find him. And then what did do he do afterwards? He didn't go watch the NFL. <laughs> But he went home and shared a meal with the very people that he worshipped with earlier. What would Jesus do? The Jesus you admire is the Jesus who had to, for probably 30 years of his life, put up with ridiculously bad preaching in his synagogue, right? The Jesus you admire, he was, he was in a group of people who, who would every week sing the Psalms off-key. He would have to listen to the catty pettiness of people arguing about the, the color of the draperies, the color of the, of the carpet. He would, have, he would be solicited by the, the home business professional you know, for some kind of new kosher face cream that they were trying to sell. Okay, that wasn't very good. <laughs> but the point is, is that he, he just put up with all of it but he, but he put up with all of it from the inside, from the inside. Most American Christians are not willing to put up with it from the, from the inside. I mean, our, your Christianity is wildly individualistic, and so is mine. And it's not, like, it's not like we can be sort of really blamed for it. It's not like we set out to be total individualists. We've, we've imbibed it from our culture. American Christianity is fundamentally about you, your tastes, getting your problems fixed, getting your preferences met, getting your needs met. We come into the church, this little outpost of the kingdom of God, but we come in more than likely still wanting to provide for our little kingdom. You know, it's all, we're the king in our own little kingdom. And as long as we're finding personal fulfillment, spiritual awareness, then we're in. I, I get that. I, I mean, that is. That's my DNA. But you've got to see, Jesus Christ was committed to getting out of himself and to into other people's lives. Into, the, into other people's lives, So I guarantee you had massively more problems in their lives than he did. <laughs> Short points of application. Paul's doctrine of the church. Like we found in the book of Ephesians so far, Paul is operating on the thirty thousand foot stratospheric level. He's way up there, and he's got a really high doctrine of the church. You know, he's up there say, he's saying Jesus is all about my wife and I are one, and you know, cut cut my hand and I bleed, and my kids and I are one, and he holds the church in really high regard, ergo, therefore, I think we have to be really cautious about the kind of criticisms that we undertake of other Christians and other Christian traditions. Um, I, when I listen to Christians ripping on other Christians, um, largely largely out of ignorance, but sometimes not out of ignorance, just ripping on them, I wonder if they really realize that Aren't they hurting Christ? I mean, isn't that, didn't Christ say he was going to inhabit that community? Aren't they actually tearing him with their barbed words and the knife in the back? You know, I recognize there's a time for criticism. There's a time and place for criticism. But it would seem to me that any kind of criticism we make of the church or of other churches, it ought to be at least within the cautious circumspect tones, the respectful tones that indicate, I'm not talking about my wife, I'm talking about someone else's wife. Another man's wife that I'm criticizing. Another parent's kids that I'm criticizing. you You just don't do that very brazenly now, do you? You know, at All Saints, we really try not to define ourselves over and against other churches. I mean, we... Purposely, I don't get up here and try to say, oh, we're not like those Christians over there who do it that way because we love the church. And we love the variety of expression in the church. And uh, we hope that even if we see their sins and see their weaknesses, instead of pointing a long index finger at them, it will just humble us to see our own. If we happen to be more mature than the rest of them, well, it's not like we made ourselves mature, is it? It's the gift of his grace. So we try to take that, um, take that attitude. Be, be aware of this attitude. I found it in myself oh, so many times. The attitude that the church would be better off if there were more people like me in it. If only the church were a little more open-minded like me. Because that's always, you realize, that's the parenthetical statement at the end of, of these. If only the church were more open-minded like me. If only the church were more theologically astute, like me. If only the church were more more gracious, like moi. <laughs> you know, when we're ripping on a church, when we're ripping on the bride, usually we're being just as judgmental, self-righteous, and intolerant as the people that we're stereotyping. It's always, always, always easier to live as a critic on the outside than as a participant within. Jesus Christ resisted that temptation. You must too. Number two. I guess this is number two on points of application. If All Saints is your church, then apply it here. If if you have another church, then I say gladly apply it there. But this is it. You must love the church of Jesus Christ. You must love the church before she becomes beautiful. You have to love her before she becomes beautiful. You have to love her when she still has acne. You you have to love her because she's not really beautiful, is she? But we are called to love her before she grows up, becomes a knockout, and has a diamond tiara put on her head. We are called to love her now as she is because that's the way of the gospel. That's how Jesus loved us. He didn't wait until we got our acts together before he said, I'll be, I'll be your lover. He took us oh, He took us, like Ezekiel puts it in Ezekiel chapter 16, which is graphic, beautiful imagery of the gospel in the Old Testament. God speaking to his people. He said, on the day you were born, your umbilical cord was not cut. You, were, you weren't bathed you weren't cleaned up you weren't rubbed with salt you weren't wrapped in a baby blanket no one cared a fig for you no not one no one did one thing to care for you tenderly in those ways you were thrown out into a vacant lot and left there dirty and unwashed a newborn nobody wanted and that's you know it's the picture of an abandoned abandoned child and then i came by says the lord i saw you all miserable and bloody and yes i said to you lying there helpless and filthy live Live! Grow up like a plant in the field. And you did. You grew up. You grew tall and matured as a woman, full-breasted with flowing hair. But you were naked and vulnerable, fragile and exposed. So I came by again and saw you, saw that you were ready for love and a lover, and I took care of you. I dressed you and protected you. I promised you my love. I entered the covenant of marriage with you. I, God, the master, I gave you my word. You became mine. And I gave you a good bath, washing off all that old blood and anointing you with oils. I dressed you in a colorful gown and put leather sandals on your feet. I gave you linen blouses, a fashionable wardrobe of expensive clothing. I adorned you with jewelry, bracelets on your wrist. I fitted you with a necklace, emerald rings, sapphire earrings, and a diamond crown. You were provided with everything precious and beautiful. You were a queen. You became world famous, a legendary beauty. Brought to perfection by my adornments. She will look like that one day. The problem is, if you wait for the church to look like that, it's going to be too late. Jesus Christ, praise be to God, he didn't wait for me to get my act cleaned up before he loved me. I didn't have to jump through the hoops of moral compliance before he loved me. And friends, if, you, if your real desire is to grow into maturity as a Christian, I would assume that's most of us, right? If you really want to grow in maturity as a Christian, the way to do that is not through a maturity class. <laughs> it's by loving the unlovely. It's by loving people in the church, by loving the church, by being interdependent with them as is, by imitating the gospel you so loudly profess. My last word is this. Interdependence means availability. Interdependence means making yourself available. God will constantly be interrupting your plans, rewriting your itinerary by sending you people with problems. And the thing is, you can be like the... uh, The priest on the road uh, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You can pass by the people with problems, preoccupied with your more important tasks, just like he did. Uh, You can keep on reading your Bible oblivious to your friends. You can hold on to your own personal spirituality. But the beginning of love, of true love, of loving a family, is being available to them, listening to them, being willing to be interrupted. By them and then acting on their behalf. Love the church. Love the church. I mean, it would be. It, it it would be like a soldier goes off to Iraq. He steps on an IUD. He loses. He was engaged to be married to this girl before he left, and he comes back and he's in a wheelchair and he has no legs. And she says. I don't want you anymore. I love your face. I love, I love the, the beautiful parts of you, but I don't want you anymore because you don't have legs. Because you're scarred on your arms. You're, you're scarred on your torso. Christianity doesn't work like that. The real, the real God of the Bible doesn't operate like that. That's the, you can only find that only in America only in American Christianity. So pray with me. Father, Father, cause your church in all of her different facets, cause it to spread and grow and protect your church from attacks and reform your church where she's compromised and make her more and more beautiful and cause, even cause some of us to to see the beauty that's in her I, I what's there it's just a lot of times in life we we go along and it's almost like a light bulb goes off on our head and said you know there is beauty here but it was a beauty i never saw until now maybe you'd make that light bulb go off in some of our heads and and give us a deep love for the church just like jesus has amen